Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast about liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I'm here, as always, with the canon theologian of our diocese, Father Stephen Gautier. Welcome, Father Stephen. Good to be back, Alex. Um, Today, uh, the topic I wanted to talk about was church councils. And um, I can absolutely guarantee you that uh, growing up in evangelical circles, church councils, um, I didn't really know anything about them at all. I knew kind of vaguely from history class that there were times when uh, the the church, the Catholic church, had gotten together and made some decisions on some matters, but uh, the things that were decided were probably not very uh, not very important, and uh, I didn't really need to pay attention to them at all. Obviously, coming to the Anglican Church, uh, that um, the the understanding is very different. The church councilors are incredibly important moments in in the in the history of the church that were incredibly important to pay attention to and, and understand and helped us to know um, the nature of our faith. But let me just ask you, Father Stephen, um, what is a church council, and how do I understand what what's going on with it? Well, I'm going to suggest a secular analogy, but before I do so, I want to say something, that sometimes things are really important to us and we don't realize it. And so you're exactly right. I think all of our experience in the evangelical world is that people think of this as something to do with Roman Catholics or the Orthodox and the like. But actually, almost all of what we we teach about the, the Trinity, about the person of Christ and things, is based on the clarifications that come from those councils. So even though we don't appeal to them and such, is it really does inform our faith. Almost all of our faith as evangelicals, regardless of our tradition, will come back to this, at least those first four great ecumenical councils. Hmm. But again, your real question was, what, um, what, what is a council all about? And I think the secular example I'd suggest to you is um, what I think would be called a DTR in more recent years, uh, define the relationship moment. Okay. And for those of our listeners who are less familiar with this, as I understand it, is we imagine a young couple, and they're dating, and Alex, you're married, I'm married, Have you go through the, the, the phase of getting to know someone, getting to the point of getting engaged, etc. Yeah, we've all and been there. We've all been there. <laughs> and imagine this couple, they're along the way, and you're the guy in this situation, and you think it's pretty much looks like we're about to the point, uh, we're sort of vaguely, maybe talk, start talking about engagement and move on, unless they were in our senior year in college. And so suddenly we're at a dinner one night and we're talking and the girlfriend, our girlfriend here, um, starts talking about job offers she's considering on the West Coast. You know, we're here in the Midwest. And she's mentioning this, but she's not mentioning me. Okay. <laughs> and we thought maybe it's an oversight. But we uh-huh. also have another dinner where we get together and she's mentioning future plans. And the one thing that's noticeable is my... You're not my there. absence. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so I said, well, maybe I've misunderstood. I thought we were at a certain place. So it wasn't a matter of creating. I thought we were at a certain place. But it appears that maybe that's not the case. Doubts have arisen as to th- whether things are what I thought was the situation. Mm-hmm. So that leads to a second step. So the stack is what I do at a DTR, a define the relationship, is I put words around it saying, hey, I thought we were sort of getting into the point of maybe talking about engagement. Mm -hmm. So we put words around it saying, is that right? Yeah. Okay. So we, so I put my words around, I think this is where we are. You say, here's, you lay out, here's my understanding of what our relationship is. Do you agree? 
Right. Or yeah. This is my understanding of our relationship. Mm-hmm. And I turn with loving eyes, and there are two. <laughs> but that's not the end of it. The third part, we've, the first part is we have something that raised an issue about the relationship. Then I articulate, you know, I put words around what I think it is. But then comes the thing that can be more or less pleasant, depending on the result. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is since there's another person involved, she could say, "Oh yes, you know, yeah. the, you know, with warm, loving eyes." Or it could I just be, forgot to mention that you were going to be there. Uh, you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just assume that yes, you know this would you know, be here. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> or what can happen? Is you know, time out. You're such a good friend, <laughs> and I don't want to destroy our friendship. But... Oh man! So it could go both ways. And actually, this is sort of basically the dynamic of a church council. Mm-hmm. The great councils. What happened in the church's history is that um, we have this deposit of faith um, that goes back. You know, this that we talk about in the New Testament. In the New Testament, this is deposit of faith. The faith once delivered. Jude. We talk in the book of Jude. And so we're not talking about something new. This is like that relationship. It is what it is. It's there. But suddenly we're wondering, did I misunderstand something looking at this? About it. Did I yeah. understand? So, I, so what happens is these were heresies would come up. And we'll talk about some of those, I think, if you would like to talk about one or two of the, the, those councils. Sure. Is suddenly someone would say something that doesn't sound right, doesn't sound consistent with what I thought we'd been saying this, but that doesn't seem consistent with this. And that would, a council would be the DTR moment. We get together and we try to put words. So a council would articulate, they'd actually, the word, the technical term was define. And define comes from Latin meaning to put boundaries around. Fines are boundaries, you know, to put, to put boundaries around. Mm-hmm. So the council would say, here is what, in our words, what we believe. Yeah. And I'm trying to put my, that's not the end of the council though. You see, the council, then the next step is they have to go back home and people can say, that's like the girlfriend saying, yes, that's so right. Uh Or they say, whoa, I'm out of here. Okay. And that's called reception. Okay. And so what the councils we'd have is the, that's why, for example, in the book, in the 39 Articles of Religion uh, that we have for the, in in the Anglican Church, is we emphasize that some councils were mistaken. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and the proof that the process was, so how do we know those that weren't and those that, that were, is this third step, is the council gets together, they come to a conclusion, but it's what we call reception. When they come back home, what do the people of God, who are ultimately, this is the body of Christ, do they say, yes, this is the faith we've always had, or is, no, this is newfangled. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, spend too much time studying, but, you know, this isn't our faith. Sure. And so that's what the third step is so the council is basically an issue comes up a heresy maybe i could suggest one of our first councils that way uh and talk about how the, the example of yeah this. first let me ask you though so who's invited to this to this dtr who's invited to these councils well they're different first of all councils originally um were were local they'd be local churches were involved controversies very often very local mm-hmm. later on starting in the fourth century uh, you know, with the peace of, of Constantine, you know, when the when the church can sort of come out as an institution, they took on and when, when the, they took on broad sort of in, the entire world was considered as far as the to, the Greek the Greco Roman world, the world they people knew, the entire world was involved. Okay. So what would happen is they would invite all the bishops. Uh, typically, uh, people because it was so hard to travel, you'd have a, a preponderance. Most of the, they're in the east, and so overwhelmingly, they tend to be the bishops of the eastern church. But they have a few westerners who would who would come as well. But they tried as best they could to represent everyone, the, everyone. Yeah. And of course, the, the the documents would go out to everybody as far as the reception. Okay. So they would be called, and they would deal with one of these issues. Like the first one that was called was at Nicaea, and uh, a lot of our 
people are Anglicans or Roman Catholics are familiar that the Nicene Creed is what we recite every Sunday. That comes from this first council at Nicaea. Okay. And here's a classic example of how it worked is there was a parish priest in Alexandria. I think he's, you visited Alexandria, right? I have visited Alexandria. For our, our listeners here? My, my, my namesake. Uh, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's probably much changed uh, in the 21st century. And, you know, that's, that's where the great library was from, right? Exactly. It was actually the largest Greek-speaking city. Okay. It was one of the great uh, pinnacles of Greek civilization um, was Alexandria. Yeah, that's well. And it was actually... <laughs> yes, exactly. This is a world traveler. Folks. <laughs> and in Alexandria, there's a parish priest uh, named Arius. And everyone agreed. The scriptures say that Jesus was the son of God. No question about that. Arius said the same thing. See, I said, like, in defining the relationship moment, you're using the language, but suddenly he was drawing conclusions that didn't seem right with that. He was saying, well, that means that Jesus really is, you know, Christ, Jesus, is fundamentally really different from God. Okay, because he's the son of God, he's different. Right, so for example, here's the one argument he would make. Gee, you and I are both fathers. Well, gee, um, that means if you're somebody's a son, that you, you basically means that the, the father has to exist before there's a son. One has to come before the other. So there must yeah. have been a time before there was a begotten. If, if Christ was the begotten son, the only, begot, the, the only begotten son of God, well, if he's begotten of God, there must have been a time where the father, where he wasn't begotten yet. Okay. Which puts yeah. the father into a whole different class, a, yeah. a whole different category. Um, there are whole sorts of variations of this, but basically we come up with Christ being anywhere from sort of a secondary level of God to a secondary God, like a demiurge, okay. uh, to basically being a creation. Maybe the first, this, uh, this, this, the, the master creature, but being God, something less. That God created Jesus. Right. Yeah, the, okay. the, first, the first of all creatures. Yeah. Uh, sometimes uh, language that you take from the book of Proverbs would be used that way, you know, saying maybe this, you know, this, this first, first creation. Yeah. So this makes a tremendous difference to us as Christians because the heart of our Christian message, why did Jesus' death on the cross have such power? Where's that promise? It's only because he was both truly God and truly man. No man, no matter how good, no more creature could have that power. Yeah, to forgive sins. Right. That, uh, the power of the cross would not have that except for the fact that, that his divinity took on our humanity, but he remained fully God. He didn't give up. He was fully God and fully man. Okay. So what it really had to deal with, what does it mean to be the, the son of the father? Yeah. And so that's really what the, the Council at Nicaea dealt with, being very simple here. Uh, they dealt with the issue, and we talk about it. So they basically, we know the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father, and we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, yeah. who is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember in the Nicene Creed, we say God from God. What does it mean to be begotten? God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, okay. not made. Yeah. Of one being. So what they did is they basically spelled it out. In case you don't know what this means, right. <laughs> it means it's not made, you're not a creation, you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's the same substance, the yeah. same being. He's, he shares everything. There's was one being between father and son. So it basically spelled out to remove any misunderstanding. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, for instance, the, the stakes of that? Like, this doesn't sound to me like a sort of esoteric kind of conversation just between scholars about um, this or that nature of, of theology. You're exactly right. And it ties in with the, one of the earliest heresies we had, which was Gnosticism. And Gnosticism really describes a whole variety of related 
bad thinking. Okay. Uh, one of our early church fathers, Irenaeus from Lyon in France, uh, he um, wrote a book against all heresies where he catalogs all these kind of beliefs. But one of the things that the Greek philosophy had, one of the things that bothered them, we've talked about that in an earlier episode, I believe, is they thought that matter was bad. You know, that basically... Uh, you know, the matter was just inferior. Sure. We, like, it's, it's like a lot of us tend to think our minds that's something beautiful, but our body, you know, we have to go to the bathroom, it hurts, right. you know, you get it's older. Gross. It's, it's gross, right? There's somehow holding something, there's, there's, there's this beautiful, you know, non material reality that yeah. in our body, our, so, our mind, and our souls, and the stuff that we're sort of grunge that we're sort of caught in. Right. That view is a very Greek view. So that's not going to sit very well with the idea that God was fully man. Yes, but what they did. Is uh, you know with the Greeks is they they would often come up with the they called Platonism and things uh, they would often come up with the idea that well how do you get from here to there because we know there's this spiritual realm but there's this office this material how do you get from there yeah and they often would have emanations well there's God but then he sort of like you go like one step down and eventually you have like a stepladder going down where you sort of connect okay. Yeah, going down. So how am I explain that? How can it be so pure up here and so gross down here? Okay, so we've got all these intermediate sort of layers. Intermediate things. Of, it's sort of like the demiurges, you yeah. know, et cetera. You kind know, of like ozone layers of things you have right. to pass through. through. Okay. And so it, that kind of Aryan view would really fit in very, it would be, it, you could see if you have that kind of view as it surrounds you, why that would sort of fit in well, with Jesus sort of being this first, you know, first emanation from God, et cetera. But it's not the Christian message. The Christian message is God, the fullness of God. You know, and you became man in Jesus Christ. We have experienced God. You know, it says you know, we have seen His glory. Yeah, glory is that we've we the real we've had a direct experience, not some intermediate, the real thing, the direct experience of God, and that's why the power of the cross. You know, is God. We cannot separate. You know, Jesus is truly God, truly man. Okay. So he shares in our humanity so we can share in his divinity, become partakers of the divinity, as Peter tells us in his epistle. Yeah. Well, so that sounds just as important as. Some of the problems we've had, you know, in the United States and the Western world over the last hundred years or so with people um, in churches, you know, say denying the virgin birth or denying the resurrection of Jesus. We say, well, you know, these things are not optional to um, to our faith. You know, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we have no hopes, you know. So in the same way, you'd say that this really came down to if. Jesus was not fully God and fully man, then we really don't have the hope that we thought we had. No, it would have to be a very different. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the faith of the Bible. Here's the important thing again to remember is we're not talking about coming up with new, a new faith. It's the faith we've always had. It's the faith of the scriptures. What we're doing in the councils is the church is reading scripture together, but they're reading scripture. They're saying this is not what taught taught in the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. They're reading scripture together and they're reading it as church. And you know, it actually goes back to the new Testament. Remember the book Acts of the Apostles is we had one of the earliest cursed quarrels. We say a lot of, a lot of Paul's epistles, like Galatians, we, have, we, have, we see examples of this. Yeah. The issue, did you have to become a Jew to be a Christian? Right. That was a serious issue. Do you have to follow the law of Moses to in, be a Christian? In the book of Acts. Exactly. But we see in the epistles of Paul, too, like Galatians was all about the topic. But it, was, it really bothered people. And so how was this settled by the church is people got together, right, in Jerusalem, in Acts 15, and they sought the Lord together. They discussed the matter. They sought the Lord because what does the, what's the conclusion? They said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They sought God. And as church, they were able to say, here is authoritatively what, the, what Christ has to say in this. Because the church is the body of Christ. You know, mm-hmm. That's where the spirit of Christ resides. Remember, we talked about it earlier, is the reason we have the book Acts of the Apostles, probably, 
is yeah. is talking about what about where does continuity come from? Because when Luke is written, is it's a few decades after Jesus. Are we like people looking back, like you and I might look back on, let's say, President Roosevelt during the Second World War or something, looking back, maybe admiring learning lessons or something. Mm-hmm. But that was then, and this is now. Or is this is there something else? Is it more organic? Yeah. And also, people ask the question: What about the Jewish thing? Did God just sort of change His mind? What happened? And Luke's answer to that in, in Luke and Acts of the Apostles was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who spoke through the prophets of the uh-huh. Old Testament. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? As we saw in Luke's Gospel. And then we have the Holy Spirit in Pentecost fills. That's the Spirit is the breath, the life of it fills his church. Uh, you know, and so the church basically is where you find Jesus today. Yeah. So it's not, it's not, it's not just an organization of humans. It actually has the, the, the church as a whole has the, the power of Jesus, the living place of Jesus. You know, sometimes it's easy for us to think, you know, in our creed, we say it's true. Jesus was man. He rose again to the father. He's sitting at the right hand of the father and he'll come again. Those, these are true, but that doesn't mean he's absent now. Yeah. In the middle. Right. His, he rose bodily, will come back bodily. Right. But the fact is, he, he says, I don't leave you orphans. He's here with us today, and he's here in the church. So the, the theology behind councils, as we see in Acts of the Apostles, is we get together and discuss, but it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Sure. And that's ratified by the people of God, you know, saying in the, in the case of Nicaea, there was a lot of opposition. But the fact at the end of the day, that the opposition tended to be, frankly, from... Uh, a lot of it came from very intellectual quarters. At one time, probably more bishops were Aryan than not. But the people of God said, no, that's not the faith we have. Yeah. So yeah. it's that combination of, you know, we have the issue, we decide it, but ultimately it's ratified by, that, by the acceptance of the people of God. Right, right. Okay. And again, one of the things that should uh, help us understand that this is not something later on, like a Dan Brown type of thing, is any of us who are proudly evangelicals, people who've never heard of the councils will tell you, why do I believe these things about Jesus? They say, because it's in the Bible. And that's exactly right. The, the power of the councils comes from, again, they're simply telling us how the church has always read mm-hmm. the Bible. And it's reading scripture It's reading together. scripture together. It's not making up something. It's simply reading scripture together. We've talked before about how, you know, Jesus doesn't, the, the Lord doesn't leave us alone between his coming in the flesh as Jesus and his coming again at the end of time, but the Holy Spirit remains with us. So you're saying that we can, we can understand these counsels, uh, like in, in that light, that the Holy Spirit is working Definitely through the church the Holy to work. Spirit. And to us, there was one, um, one of the early church fathers, uh, Vincent of an island off of Marseille called, uh, Marseille in France. And he had a, he, they called it the Vincentian canon. He says, what's the, the Catholic, like the university? He says, what's believed and believed everywhere, always by everyone. So mm-hmm. the idea is when the whole church says, yes, this is our faith, it's undeniable that the Holy Spirit is in the church. When the church, both East and West, comes and says, yes, this is our faith, it's an authoritative reading of the scriptures. It's still under scripture, sola scriptura. Yeah. But there are authoritative readings of the scripture. This is an authoritative reading of the scripture. Sure, sure. Okay. Yeah, you said before something about um, how uh, the 39 articles in Anglicanism said that, you know, certain councils have been, have have got it wrong. How do we know when they've got it wrong? Well, we had some historical examples around Nicaea uh, of some other councils at the time, but it was their failure to be received. Okay, Again, so that's that the third, third step. That's that third step. That's why we say, you know, it's, the council does not have an independent power 
apart from its reception from the um, from the from the people of God. It's it's the it articulates the faith of the church. So the things to remember, it's the faith that's always been there. There's nothing new. There's no the Christ same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah, it's simply putting words around again. Like in a DTR, you know, using our, our our very secular example, is I'm simply saying I think we're here already here. This is where I want to be. I think this is where we're here. Am I wrong about that? You're right. We're, yeah, right. We're, we're we're not creating something new. We simply put words on it. Right. And then the other person said, "Yes, you're right. That is where we are." Okay. And if you look at councils that way, is this is nothing new. This is the faith of the Bible. This is the faith you know that we have. Somebody's questioning: Are we reading this right? How do we all read this together? And then we have the whole people of God, not just a few bishops who matter to get together in the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. It comes back to the whole people of God. And I think it's a wonderful sign that, again, we had councils that were rejected. And I've said, well, they're not, they're not one of those ecumenical councils. It's the reception, which is essential to their ecumenical status. Sure. Um, are there any other kind of quick highlights without getting too far into the, into the weeds over questions that certain councils um, adjudicated that are really important to us now? Yeah, I think, as I said, all Protestants accept, you know, basically the first four councils, you know, are, mm-hmm. are, are universally accepted, I think, uh, across the board. Um, is Constant, the, the next council after Nicaea was Constantinople was held, Nicaea was in 325, Constantinople was just a few years later in 381. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the original creed simply said, I believe in the Holy Spirit. But, you know, for all of us who um, read, the, read the scriptures, we know that for people who are new to the Bible, those of us who know the Bible realize this, this is the Bible's teaching, but if you're just new to the Bible, sometimes that's confusing. What do you mean by Holy Spirit? It's just sort of the power of God, uh, you know, separate, you know, just the effect of God. What is it exactly? And so we know in the Icing Creed, we're told is, you know, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, to who together with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He's spoken through the prophets. Mm-hmm. So the teaching is the Holy Spirit is actually, there is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't a force. He's one of the he's one of the the, the three members, persons of the Trinity. Okay, yeah, that's a that's, pretty that, important. That's big. <laughs> because a lot of people again don't know what to do. First, what do they mean by the Holy Spirit? You know, by that that's so it's, it's more that it's not just a force of God. You know, it actually is God. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, one of the uh, the three, uh, you know, the the three persons uh, in in the Godhead. Uh, then they had two councils that had to do with the they were very closely related. One was in 431; the other is 21 years late, uh, 20 years later. In 431, there's something called Ephesus, and then 20 years later, something called Chalcedon. And here's something for your readers to be wary of: Chalcedon spelled with a ch, but it's pronounced like a k. Okay. So amaze your friends. So okay. not not Chalcedon. A lot of people who read a lot are very well read who haven't heard. Still say Chalcedon. <laughs> it's, uh, so now you now you know our secret. Okay. Great. Okay. <laughs> But what happened here is we know that Jesus is truly God and truly man. And so the tendency there is how do we balance that? He's truly God and truly man. And there were two different heresies. And one, the first was from a man named Nestorius. Okay. And uh, Nestorius took the view that he treated them almost like completely separate things. There's Jesus of Nazareth, you know, someone who, it's true, Jesus, you know, the, uh, the second person of the Trinity, right? The Son of God has existed before all ages. But Jesus of Nazareth was born in Nazareth. And okay. so Nestorius emphasized that they're very separable people. He argued, hmm. for example, and there's a test case they gave. It wasn't so much about Mary as making something, as this, does this make sense? His argument is Mary is the mother of Jesus, but she's not the mother of God. Hmm. Because the, she bore the man, Jesus Christ, but she didn't bear the second person of the Trinity. Well, the church said, wait a second, you can't separate the two. You know, Jesus Christ, you know, is truly God and fully God and fully man. You okay. can't say, you, you know, if you've done, you see one, you see in the other. 
So that phrase, mother of God, that we hear from our, our, our Catholic friends really came out of this attempt to clarify. Right. Um, it wasn't talking about Mary, uh, this is, as such. It was really talking about something about the nature of Jesus, right. saying there's no way Jesus is ever separate. Jesus of Nazareth is not separable. Okay. From the second person of the Trinity. So yeah. if you say Mary is mother of God, then you have to mean that um, Jesus was fully God. And this was not a separable entity. Right. He was arguing that Mary was the mother of Jesus, but not the mother of God. Okay. Yeah. And he's saying, well, again, it seemed uh, that he said, no, that's not the case. Because again, since the two are separate, you can't do one without the other. So it's emphasizing the absolute connection between those, uh, uh, between those two, where Nestorius wow. had emphasized the difference. Like almost having two different people, you know. There you have, the, you have this sort of Jesus of Nazareth, you know, tied onto, but you know, but no, they're, they're the inseparability. Then they went the opposite way. Uh, you know, some people are, you know, argued because the the inseparability, they almost allowed the divinity of Jesus to overwhelm his humanity, saying, "Well, they were." It's true they started out true God and true man, but when you get together with God, you're sort of overwhelmed. Okay, it's like putting a drop of ink in the ocean. And All Jesus' right. humanity was just overwhelmed. So by he ended it. up being like ninety percent God, and well, like yeah, ninety nine point nine nine. But basically, yeah, they yeah. basically said that uh, he was. They were called the one nature, saying you know, Jesus was really, uh, really became for all practical one nature. You know, mm-hmm. we, you know, and uh, that was uh, called mono, uh, monophysitism. And the uh, again, this council clarified: no, that's not true. It said we have to remember that he's fully God, fully man. You know, complete. He both are clear. He's truly God, fully man in every sense, fully God in every sense. But they're distinct. But they're they're inseparable. They can't yeah. be separated. But they remain distinct. Yeah. And there's a beautiful image of that that I think is means something to to our listeners here. Perhaps is remember when Moses, the church loves this example. When Moses sees the burning bush, what amazes him? He said he wanted to see this marvel. Well, bushes burning is not actually a marvel. You can go to Southern California and see a lot of it. <laughs> We're told that what, what amazed Moses was that it, it, uh, it burned, but it wasn't consumed. Hmm. And so the marvel, this was the image the church gave it, Calcin of Jesus, is he has full humanity, that, that yeah. wood. You know, he could die, right? Because he's yeah. a truly human being. But fire, the fire of God, which normally destroys, you know, it, it would consume anything less than itself. Yeah, it doesn't Somehow, swallow it up. in Jesus, it doesn't swallow up the humanity. Interesting. Truly. Yeah. And that's why icons in the East, for example, of the Lord Jesus, have blue over red. Instead hmm. of having one color. Eastern icons always have two colors for Jesus and Mary. And for Jesus, we have blue, meaning his divinity. And his red is humanity. He has a blue cloak over a red, uh, a red, uh, a red vestment. Oh, okay. And so, so the blue means, means he's truly human. But that, you know, but that uh, his, his divinity, blue for the sky, you know, like the heavens, has covered his humanity. But wow. that, that image of the burning bush is powerful, isn't it? It's, it's somehow it burns, yeah, it but is. it's, you know, it's, com- it's a miracle how it happens, but it, it, it burns. It's truly fire. But yet the, the thing you normally set fire, that they're consumed, and yet it doesn't consume his humanity. That's what Chalcedon basically tells us about Jesus. Yeah. It really, I mean, so it, it clarifies... So it seems to me that it's clarifying the nature of God, but not necessarily simplifying it. No, not at all. <laughs> it tells us some profound truths, too. Is, uh, for example, Jesus being fully man, as he's, there's something called docetism, a belief that Jesus was just sort of playing make-believe, like he wasn't really nervous in the garden or that kind of thing, and saying, mm-hmm. no, he really suffered. Yeah. It was real. He was a true human being where it said he had to grow. And remember, Jesus is found in the temple. It said he grew in, in grace and favor. He actually had to learn to be a carpenter. Yeah. He didn't have some special gift, you know, that he just automatically was the world's best carpenter. He actually 
really know what knew what it meant. He wasn't like a superhero, and he was just acting like right. That he, he was exactly. A, he wasn't okay. acting like. So it tells us that makes it very. It, it helps us understand. For to me, for example, one of the things I don't know if we've talked about this before. But to me, spiritually, it really helps. Is in the Middle Ages, they said, you know, they talked about three aspects of the sufferings of Christ. Mm-hmm. That we really can take comfort knowing that Jesus really knows them. Yeah. You know, one of the things when something really bad happens, like, for example, when people get a diagnosis, let's say with cancer, it can be a really lonely place. Because people who haven't been there, even though they want to sympathize in some very real, they can't go there. They just don't know. They really don't. They want yeah. to. It's like the apostles who fall asleep and want to stay awake with Jesus. They can't, they can't go there. That They can't actually go that extra step. Mm-hmm. They want to, mm-hmm. but they, they can't. And I always thought with the Lord Jesus, he knows all of our, you know, because he is truly human. For example, uh, the, they talked, one thing is the, the agony in the garden. Jesus went, knew what it really meant to have that foreboding of something awful about to happen, of real yeah. fear. yeah. He sweat like blood. You know, he 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 knew he knows what it means to be in a position of fear where you can't change something. The second one is a scourging at the pillar. Mm-hmm. Jesus whipped that. This is not metaphorical pain. Yeah, it's the real thing for people who know what it means to have the, the agony of real you know, pain. They had another crowning with thorns, real humiliation. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The carrying of the cross, and I like that one because the carrying of the cross. You know, very often when you hurt, you can sort of curl up, in sort of fetal position, and make it feel a little better. Yeah. Uh, imagine the fact of not having that luxury, hurting and still having to carry on. Yeah. Yeah. Every mother knows that when you're sick, you know, you have to, you can't just say I'm sick today with the kids. You still have to keep somehow trudging on. Sure. And finally in, 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 in the, in the crucifixion, he actually died. Yeah. Not a near death. He really died. He looked into the pit and fell in. He mm-hmm. really died. So the most profound pains we have as human beings, he has actually experienced. We're not alone. That's why sure. I love in Hebrews. He really knows. Yeah, and so this is one of the things with Calvin saying he's a real human being, right? Right. And so this is not playing, you know, pretending he's afraid and pretending he's suffering. You know, it's the real thing, and yet he's fully God. Yeah, both inseparable. You know, so again, the question that the council is adjudicating is really, really important. It, was God really with us? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, in our in in all of our human sufferings and afflictions. And again, as I say gladly to our our, our pure evangelical listeners here is this will resonate with you because this is all right out of Scripture. You might never yeah, have heard of yeah. these councils. You would say, well, I know all this. This is right in Scripture. Exactly right. Yeah. All these councils did exactly, 100% right. All these councils did is basically said when people began questioning what we know is Scripture, saying, let there be no doubt mm-hmm. of how we, as the people of God, the church, have read Scripture. So though I may not have grown up acknowledging these councils as such, we were definitely profiting from their clarifications yeah. of Scripture. Their, their authority comes from the fact, again, that it's, it's, we don't decide what the truth. The truth is what it is, and it's found in the Word of God. It's the authoritative reading of the Word of God. Well, thanks, Father Stephen. Um, That's all the time we have left for this episode. Uh, And thank you so much for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back next week with uh, more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.